welcome everyone to a special emergency edition of the Dying Sports Podcast on the Dying Sports Podcast Network. Today, we are going to be dissecting one of the great playoff performances of all time in the modern NBA history last night. Anyone who calls themselves a Hoops fan was watching Milwaukee versus Brooklyn last night and the special things that Kevin Durant was doing on the floor. Obviously, the Nets downing Milwaukee 114 to 108. This was one of the more improbable comebacks for a couple of reasons. You've got Milwaukee up 16 at half, leading 59-43. I'm already thinking, okay, this game is over. The Nets are looking discombobulated on offense. They can't get anything going. Harden is literally the walking dead out there, yet the Nets seem reluctant to pull him off the court. And having seen some of these athletes go through those injuries and just even looking back at KD when he came back a little bit early from injury and re-injured himself. And Clay Thompson is another example. And the, the list goes on and on. I, I was almost unable to watch it just because I kept thinking, my God, like something's going to pop. I think his hamstrings are going to launch into the third row of the stands or something here. They had enough medical tape on his leg to try and hold back a grizzly bear. Like it, it must have spent about $500 on therapeutic elastic tape just to even keep his leg attached. But all that to say, I'm already flipping the channel at this point. I think, okay, this game's a wash. Nets are done. The Bucks are going to close it out in six. And everyone in Brooklyn is just going to chalk it up to injuries. And, you know, you can already see the excuse mill flying and all the haters getting ready to pile on about the super team that couldn't get it done. And you could almost see the headlines getting written. So I'm now watching the Islanders lightning game. And I'm checking Twitter and Jeff Green's starting to hit a couple threes. Yeah, all right. The lead's shrinking. Oh, they've got it down to single digits. And all of a sudden, it's within a basket or two. I'm like, oh, my God, what is going on over here? So flip it back. And definitely glad I did because that was one of the more impressive feats that I've seen live as far as an individual performance goes. I mean, KD, you look at the stat line. All 48 minutes played. They didn't even think about taking them off once. 16 for 23 from the field. Four of nine from three. 13 of 16 from the free throw line. I mean, we'll, we'll get to it later about uh, how many trips he got to the free throw line there. But missed one late free throw for 50 points. And if you were watching the game right to the end, you could hear him cussing himself out and not happy that he missed that late free throw to... Uh, fall one short of the 50 piece because I think he wanted that he knew he was doing something special and 50 just sounds better than 49 everyone knows that so ultimately finishes with a 49.17 rebound 10 assists three steal two block performance in a win and not only that but came back from 17 points down at one point and in the second half, you could really just see it. And the Nets essentially abandoned their offense in the second half. And you could really see them throw the entire playbook out. And they had one goal out there, get the ball to KD and let them do KD things. Now, that being said, none of this happens without Jeff Green having an out-of-nowhere performance. And anyone who's been watching the Nets all season and followed his career knows that he's an up and down roller coaster type player. When he's hot, he's hot and you just hang on and you roll with it. When he's cold, you don't even notice him and wouldn't even know that he's dressed. But turns back time and no one knows where in God's name this came from, but the stat line, eight of 11 field goal, seven of eight from three, four for four from the free throw line, 27 points off the bench and thank god he did that because there certainly weren't too many other players in brooklyn uniforms doing much other than kd last night so you have to go all the way back to april 6 2018 for the last time green scored that many points definitely turned it back and he was i think instrumental in not only closing that gap and helping set up some of the late game heroics that kd ultimately went on to do but he got that atmosphere buzzing in that arena again because it was a morgue for a while there and rightly so they were getting blown out at home Harden clearly wasn't at 100 percent there wasn't too much of a roadmap for the comeback and then all of a sudden in comes Jeff Green he's raining threes from everywhere and anywhere on the court the place got gets a little buzz from there and the team starts rolling you could see them feed off that momentum and he's always been such a true heat check player where when he's on 
you know, you can see that high first round lottery talent that all the scouts thought when he was coming into the league and, you know, never seemed to piece it all together, but I, I, he's never not had the talent. It's just the consistency is the biggest thing. And if not for that, he would probably be a perennial all-star if he could do that night in and night out, but he can't. So we get little glimpses and flashes in the pan like this. Aside from Jeff Green, though, I mean, this win was all KD. He put the team on his back. Thank God he did because Harden, although he played, he may as well not have. I said before in one of our previous podcast episodes, I really thought the Nets were going to approach the Harden situation as a break in case of emergency. And they were going to play game five without him, see where the chips fall, give him a little bit of extra rest and rehab and try and stretch it out and get him back to as close to 100% as possible. Obviously, he's not going to be 100% at any point this postseason. He might even need surgery in the offseason. Who knows? But I thought he was going to be their emergency backup plan. That once they really needed him, if game five, they go out and they win 3-2, guess what? He was probably resting game six as well, too. But if they had a lost game five or it goes to game seven and suddenly it's an elimination game, that's when I thought they were going to deploy Harden. So to see the back and forth all day of he's playing, he's not playing, he's game time decision, he might play, he's taking warm-ups, like, that was a little bit shocking to me. I didn't know what to expect. I think as shocking as it was that he played, the more shocking thing was that there was no even attempt at a minutes restriction on him. There was no attempt to ease him back into uh, his role. It was 46 minutes played right out of the gate, you're going to wonder, especially with the state that his hamstring is in and nagging injury and it can flare up at a moment's notice, are they going to regret that? Especially because it wasn't like he was shooting the lights out and they couldn't take him off the court. I mean, you can't tell me that the Nets are a championship team if their best option is what they're going to get out of James Harden last night for the rest of their run through the NBA playoffs right now you're just not you need to be able to have someone who can go out there and give you a little bit more than what Harden put up which was one of 10 from the field oh of eight from three which is just unheard of for James Harden right he lives beyond the three-point line that's his bread and butter and you know there was certainly not even an attempt at many step backs and he patented Harden almost travel-esque step backs last night because he didn't have the mobility four turnovers five points when was the last time James Harden put up five points, let alone in 46 minutes? I mean, if maybe if he went down at half or something like that and got injured or even after the first quarter, you'd see him put up five points. But five points over the course of 46 minutes is you can tell right away there's something wrong with him still. Maybe even might be a little bit more than just a hamstring tweak, which is sort of what the the Nets are putting out there, but the Nets are pretty secretive about their medical releases and all those injuries. And they take pages of the NHL playbook where, you know, they really don't give you too much to go on. And there probably aren't, you probably count on one hand, how many people know just how significant that James Harden injury really is, but he might've been on the floor, but he wasn't healthy. He didn't have it going. His long-term health is a concern right now, especially because KD can't do what he did last night for every single game. So they're going to have to take a long, hard look at that and see what they can do as far as writing the ship on that one. But I mean, Jay Williams said it best when he called it a career best performance for KD. And I really don't disagree because yeah, he's had some great nights where he scored more he's had some phenomenal performances in NBA finals. He's had phenomenal performances when they were on their amazing run back with OKC, but to see what he did last night and just the efficiency with which he did it, right? It wasn't like he was just chucking up 40 shots and it wasn't a Kobe-esque performance where it was volume-based that he got his numbers. It was an efficient performance. It was business-like. He got it done. Anytime he pulled up for a shot, everyone in the gym just assumed it was going in. That was how hot he was. And Afterwards, you know, Giannis declared KD the best player in the world. And I don't think there's much of an argument about that right now, that he is the best player on planet Earth at putting a basketball through the rim when you need it. 
there's not too many people that'll argue that Kevin Durant wouldn't at least be in their top three to choose for someone who needs a bucket late and you've got anyone to choose from that you're going with him or if not him then maybe you can make an argument that you you want a Steph Curry or someone like that when they're having one of those heat check nights when they're she's shooting from the parking lot type thing but I I don't I don't see how anyone could realistically say that as an all-round player impacting the game at both ends of the floor seven feet tall I don't care what he's listed at he's over seven feet tall we've all seen the pictures of him next to DeMarcus Cousins and he's like two inches taller than him so seven footer he can pull up from anywhere he can score at the rim he can score at all three levels he can run your offense if you really want him to and I'm not here to compare legacies as far as LeBron or Katie or Steph or anyone like that that's nonsense and they've all been phenomenal athletes everyone should be appreciative of the greatness that we get to watch in them but if we're talking about the best ball player right now I mean LeBron's 36 We're, we're not talking about prime LeBron James who can jump out of a gym you know his age is finally starting to catch up with him we saw it with the injury we saw it all season long you know we've seen it in the evolution of his game I mean he might try and spin it as far as oh I I like being a facilitator right now I like being more of a distributor and leaning on Anthony Davis or some of my teammates like that but I mean when we were watching LeBron break into the league he, he was a scorer and there's a reason that he's sort of morphed into this new LeBron, this, this point guard LeBron version, and that's out of necessity. And you don't blame him. Like, my God, I'm only 33 and getting out of bed some days after like a round of golf, I can feel it. So I can only imagine putting yourself through playing pretty much every minute of an NBA season. So I'm not knocking him on that. That's what the body does. It ages, it gets tougher to do the things that you used to be able to. But head to head, I mean, I would love to see the NBA institute some sort of a one-on-one contest and whether it's, you know, through FIBA or the Olympics or part of All-Star Weekend, I would love to get this because for decades, everyone's always been debating of one-on-one who would win, whether it was MJ in his prime or whether it was LeBron, whether it was uh, going back to Bird and Magic and anyone like that. So the fans would love to see it, but until that happens, we'll never know, but just based on body of work and what we've seen, what Kevin Durant can do with a basketball when he is healthy, I don't think there's anyone that can hold a candle to him. Now, granted, officiating played a huge role in the performance in games three and four in Milwaukee. I mean, you can't objectively watch these things and say that there's a sport that's number one, affected more by officials than basketball is because it really with how the rule book is you could call a foul on every single play so choosing when to pull that whistle out of your pocket and not is paramount in the outcome of every single basketball game from high school all the way up to the nba but you could see it in games three and four the officials were definitely letting the bucks get a little bit more physical with not only durant but just nets players in general there was a uh, almost a throwbackness to it of early 90s or bad boys pistons now it wasn't to you know bill lambeer clotheslining people or anything like that mentality but on every single play you could see everyone was getting chipped off screens everyone was getting bumped everyone was getting hacked It, it it wasn't prison ball but it was a physical brand of basketball that they were letting them get away with and ultimately had an effect on KD because you got to look at it. Yeah. He might be seven feet tall, but he's spaghetti noodle arms, spaghetti noodle legs. Like he's not a heavy guy. And the easiest way to throw someone like that, who's got that frame and that build is to play physical with them. And I mean, there's a reason why they're putting PJ Tucker on him because he didn't score a single point yesterday, but he was guarding KD for most of the night and it is because the, you want to get him off his game, bump him off his spots, do all those little things that you get in his head, just live inside his jersey, all of that. In those two games back in Milwaukee, Durant went 20 of 53 shooting. Last night, though, Holiday and Tucker, they picked up early fouls. You, you could argue that a lot of the Bucks key players picked up some questionable early fouls in that one. And I think Jay Rue Holiday sort of alluded to that afterwards in his postgame presser. But KD went to the line 16 times on the night. Now, is that unheard of? No. I mean, James Harden has made an entire career of getting to the free throw line early and often and scores boatloads of his points that way. 
But in the playoffs, 16 times, I mean, especially given the fact that it was glaringly obvious that KD was the only real Nets player who was making an impact. Did the refs maybe give him some questionable calls and try and get the game a little bit closer? And don't give me this BS that, oh, officials don't officiate the score. Everyone officiates the score. I don't care how professional you are. Anyone who says that they're calling the game the same way if it's a blowout versus if it's a two-point game is just lying to your face. So there might have been some, okay, you know, let's let's let them get to the line there. 17-point deficit in the second half. Harden's a, a zombie out there. There's not really too much of a chance they'll come back. Well, guess what? You, you put him to the charity stripe often enough, and he gets hot on top of that. And Jeff Green is playing out of his mind. And that's literally the blueprint for how we had the final score last night. I mean, Milwaukee did have their chances too. Giannis is probably still kicking himself over that Middleton fumble that he could have just jammed home to tie the game up late. I think it was about 15 seconds left. And he just flat out dropped the ball, hit him right in the hands. It wasn't like he wasn't looking, hit him right in the hands. He just fumbled it and couldn't get it done there. But when I really knew it was over was when the Nets tried to run an offensive set late completely blown up like I don't even think they got it past the top of the three-point line multiple handoffs and just fumbling the ball around getting late in the shot clock Harden gets trapped with it swings it over to KD KD with a defender draped all over and pulls up from a deep three as the shot clock's expiring cans the tray and that's when I knew okay anything this guy shoots right now is going through the bottom of that rim so it was uh, that was the moment I knew all right, this, this comeback is pretty much complete at this point, barring some miracle on Milwaukee's side. Really, Brooklyn did everything wrong on that play that you could think of. You know, they ran into a double team. They set poor screens. They ate up a lot of their own shot clock without getting any kind of a look in a tight ball game where they still need to score. It's not like they can just dribble it out and, hey, let them foul us type thing. And they still got bailed out for Durant. So that, that was when I knew we were watching one of the all-time great performances in postseason history and that the Bucs were probably going back to Milwaukee for game six down three to two. Legacy-wise, I mean, I don't want to get too crazy into it because it's it's so tough to say how this era stacks up to another era. But I put this right up there with LeBron's game six against the Celtics in 2012. And for a lot of LeBron fans out there, they, they sort of point to that as one of his best postseason performances of all time. Uh, elimination game, 45 points, 15 boards, five assists. And you got to remember, though, he did this with Wade and Bosch and pretty much a full complement of Heat players on his side. Katie had literally no one. Harden may as well have been in a suit and tie watching from the sidelines. There was no Kyrie. Jeff Green was the only other viable scorer, and he still put up the numbers that he put up. Everyone on the court knew exactly where the ball was going on every single play, and they were still able to do it. Like I said, it's nearly impossible to compare errors, though I'm sure there's someone you know at MIT right now trying to attempt to come up with some sort of mathematical function to do just that. But it's hard to say where this would rank all time on the greatest playoff performances list but the point is it would be on that list you cannot tell me that you watched that game last night and even if you just watched the second half or even just the fourth quarter and say that that was not one of the all-time special playoff performances and it didn't have an iconic moment you know you didn't have magic johnson playing center out of necessity in the nba finals you didn't have the lebron chase down swat off the backboard you didn't have the mj flu game you didn't have russell's 30 point 40 rebound game like some people might knock it for that because it didn't have that iconic moment but my god like you you knew watching that game last night that you were watching something special so that was definitely one of the peak moments of the season and probably something that NBA.com and all their media team is in the middle of splicing up and putting into all sorts of sound bites and clips and this and that, and they'll archive it. And you'll probably be seeing highlights from that game get played from now until the day you die, because my God, uh, the Brooklyn Nets are even going back to the New Jersey Nets don't have a lot of playoff success that they can hang their hats on or iconic moments or anything like that. So that's probably going to be living in infamy in Brooklyn or New Jersey folklore for years to come.
the best comparable I could think of uh, was Barkley's 43.15 rebound, 10 assists, triple-double game. Uh, and that came against Seattle way back in 1993 in the Western Conference Finals. And um, up until then, for a while, it, it was the highest-scoring triple-double in postseason history. So he affected the game at both ends of the floors. Durant certainly had his moments on defense, but it wasn't like he was an absolute lockdown beast. But, I mean, you, all you have to do is look at that Nets roster to realize that compared to the trees that Milwaukee is trotting out there on any given night, the Nets are kind of undersized. They've got scores to boot when they're healthy. So most of their wins come from just being, you know, a track meet and putting up 130 points and daring you to try and beat them. And if you can, more power to you. But he definitely doesn't get enough credit for the job he's doing at protecting the rim with Giannis and Lopez and some of those other big boys that are out there, not to mention the fact that he has to carry the offensive load that he does on the other end of the court while getting beat up by holiday, while getting hacked by Tucker and and all of that. And having to play 48 minutes. Like he literally did not take a breath last night. So kudos to him. Don't get me wrong. This is a huge deal. And I mean, anyone who has an internet connection last night probably saw that the internet nearly blew up with whether it was Twitter or Instagram or whatever social media platform you are on. Anyone who is a sports fan was talking about the KD performance and the comeback and, Oh, it's down to eight. Oh, it's down to six. Oh my God. They tied it. Oh, they took the lead. Like it it was everywhere and anywhere, but I, I can't help but think that KD would really be getting his flowers a little bit more that he already is because it's already the talk of everything. And I'm sure Stephen A. Smith has 1500 opinions to spew about this and Skip Bayless and everyone else in between. But if it wasn't for the fact that outside of Brooklyn, the Nets are so universally hated across the NBA right now because of the optics that they formed a super team, I think that this would probably be viewed as top five playoff performance ever. And there wouldn't be much debate about it. Now, I'm not saying it is a top five playoff performance of all time, but I I think that a lot of people would be quick to take up that point of view if it weren't for the fact that essentially the Nets are super villains right now and everyone's kind of rooting against them. And there's a lot of Houston Rockets fans who are very happy that the uh, trade for Harden has blown up in their face and some of the moves that they made haven't worked out. But if KD were doing this on OKC, people would be losing their minds. If he had done it for the team that had drafted him, that he stayed loyal to, that I don't even care if they if they had kept Russ and Harden and it was the big three of them marching around for years to come, number one, they'd probably have a couple titles by now. But number two, there would be no talk of super team this, da 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 da, da. Like everyone would be tripping over themselves to congratulate him on the game and the performance he put up last night and would probably be calling it one of the best games in postseason history of the at least of the modern era and you know the the fact that i have to go all the way back to 1993 to kind of find a comparable so that's what 28 years now we're talking about shows you just how special what he did was last night all that to say though there's still some business to be done because you got to go back to milwaukee You don't know what's going to go on with the officiating. If they call the game like games three and four, well, Brooklyn's going to be in tough. If Harden isn't exponentially better than he was the other night, well, Brooklyn's going to be in tough. And if they take care of business in game six and they come back to game seven and they still don't have a Kyrie, which I don't see any kind of scenario where he comes back and, is effective at least. I can see him coming back and having a Harden-like performance because his entire game revolves around quick starts and stops and ankle injuries aren't something to be messed around with on a good day, let alone with someone who relies almost exclusively on his speed and his footwork like a Kyrie does. But I, I don't see much of a roadmap for him coming back and having an effect on the series how much healthier does Harden get? Can he get back to even, you know, 50% of what he was pre-injury? Because if I had to put a percentage at what I saw last night, that was like 10% James Harden. Like he could not start, could not stop, had zero explosiveness, zero lift. He was a distraction out there. He was out there to make the Bucks think about the fact that James Harden is on the floor. 
but you could have picked a fan from the stands and put a James Harden jersey and slapped a, a beard on him there. And that, that would have been pretty much the equivalent of what they got out of him. So there's still business to take care of. And I think long-term, this goes up in sort of stature or glory if the Nets ultimately win the NBA championship. If they get out of this round, obviously it goes up a rank there too, because if they end up losing to the Bucks, yeah, it's a nice performance, but they didn't even win the series. So I think a lot of this legacy talk boils down to what, what ultimately happens at the end of this year. So we'll have to see what direction the Nets go in. Are they able to close out the Bucks? Are they able to get past the Hawks or the Sixers or whoever comes out of that series next round? Can they beat whoever comes out of the West? Like we talk about a weird year in the West there with who's going to be left. It's going to be either Clippers, Jazz or Suns. And, you know, I don't think too many people would have picked those as the final three when all was said and done at the beginning of the year. But we'll see. Everything at this stage of Katie's career, though, is about legacy he's got his haters he's got his stands he's got his detractors he's got everything in between he gets knocked all the time because his quote-unquote mickey mouse titles that he won with the warriors right he's got a couple finals mvps he's been there a couple other times lost to the raptors lost when he was with okc but everything at this point is just legacy because He's out there to prove a lot of the critics wrong because he is not an athlete who you can say ignores what gets said in the media, right? I don't know how many burner accounts he's been turned up over the years, but he'll clap back at fans. He'll clap back at media. He'll get testy with some of the questions that reporters will ask him. And a lot of that is because he's a super proud guy. He's very defensive of his legacy. He hates the fact that he went to Golden State, thought it was going to be his team, ultimately found out that that entire West Coast is just so in love with Steph Curry that it'll never be anything other than Steph's team. And now is getting hated on because of his new super team in Brooklyn. He's now in sort of revenge tour FU mode and doesn't care, I don't think, as much about the optics of it. I think he's just trying to pad his resume at this point with as many titles, as many scoring titles, as many MVPs, as many whatever awards and accolades you can think of. So that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, even his most ardent detractors and critics can't argue with whatever his trophy case looks like you can say yeah you joined you know a 73 win team with golden state yeah you got carried by so and so yeah you went and formed a super team in brooklyn but i think what he's just going to want to be able to do is just point at his trophy case and say yeah not all might be true but i still got it done so all of this is for not if they can't at least get past the bucks so Super interesting to see. My God, what a performance. We definitely witnessed one of the uh, special moments, at least in modern basketball history, because that was uh, an otherworldly performance last night in that big victory over Milwaukee. So had to get that off my chest. We're going to take a real quick break here, talk to you guys about our friends over at MyBookie. Then we're going to be sitting down with Sixers beat writer and NBA reporter Austin Krell to talk about the Sixers-Hawks series because guess what? As exciting as last night was, there's still another series going on in the Eastern Conference. We're not even at the Eastern Conference Finals yet here, folks. So we're going to break down that series, talk all things Philly basketball and more. Stay tuned for that after the break. All right, before we get to our friend Austin, we are going to tell you about MyBookie. If you haven't already, get over to MyBookie's website and sign yourself up for some of the best lines across the internet. If you're going to gamble, you might as well do yourself a favor and get yourself some favorable money lines, parlays, everything else you can imagine, whether it's horse racing, MMA, basketball, baseball, or anything else, MyBookie has you covered. Easiest ways to do it, head over to mybookie.ag, use the promo code DYNESPORTS, D-Y-N-E-S-SPORTS, no spaces in between. Let them know who sent you. 
or head over to the dinespressbox.com, check out a couple articles, and then we've got links all over the place that'll take you there. It's already going to populate that promo code. If you've never been on my bookie before, you can also get all sorts of first-time deposit bonuses as well. So scroll through there, see what applies to you, see which one you'd like to take advantage of and more. Last night, obviously, Kevin Durant blew up our parlay. You can't predict when history is going to be made, and last night was definitely historic. So you know what? I'm not even that upset about it. We got to witness something extremely cool and to watch that live as opposed to just highlights or on a SC top 10 or something like that, kind of worth it. So getting back to the winning ways though, we're not going to do a parlay tonight. We are just going to do Sixers money line to beat the Hawks going back to Philadelphia tied to two. I think Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons and the boys get it done tonight. Let's start our win streak going again. Head over to my bookie and get yourself a little wager placed on that. If you want to follow along with us, if you want to do your own thing, more power to you. I do not profess to be Nostradamus here with all of the answers as evidenced by last night. Must be legal gambling age to take part 18 or over. If you or your friends have a problem gambling, there's all sorts of helplines and information available on the my bookie website website only gamble what you are ready to lose please gamble responsibly best of luck now let's get to it with austin krell joining us on the podcast today we've got sixers beat writer and nba reporter austin krell austin thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today sir no problem thank you for having me I guess a good place to start is coming off a tough loss on Monday night. What's the mood like in Sixers Nation these days heading into game five tied 2-2? The mood, I would say, is basically any sort of meme that conveys a burning fire in the background with someone walking away calmly. The Hawks would be the team walking away calmly, and then the Sixers fans would be the fire in the background. Um, it was not pretty by any stretch in game four and the Sixers, you really felt like they let an opportunity go. Uh, Doc Rivers conveyed as much in his post-game press conference. You know, you can't really rewrite history at this point. It's a, it's a thing of the past. You have to move on to game five, but it was definitely something where if they lose the series, you will look back and say, what if we hadn't blown an 18 point lead and, uh, and, and, and our, our MVP candidate didn't go 0 of 12 in the fourth in, in, in the second half. So of, of all Space Jam-esque chaos, it was sort of just the perfect combination of things that could go wrong. That went yeah. Wrong. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right. You already touched on you're up 18 at one point. You're up 13 at the half. Was it more so a sense of Philly just took their foot off the gas pedal in the second half? Or do you think there was some sort of adjustment that the Hawks made at halftime that they exploited something on the Philadelphia defensive side of the ball? Well, I think some of it was like they took the foot off the gas. Uh, I, I thought like the most readily available example of that was John Collins or the Hawks had a, had a, had a massive effect on the uh, offensive glass in, in, in that game. And there were a lot of shots that, Sixers could have come down with after the miss. Collins was right there to clean up and inject some life and in pulse into the Hawks and their fans. And, you know, Philly got really lucky in a lot of ways with the shooting. The Hawks did not shoot the ball well. And that's kind of, you know, a, a point of concern for the rest of the series in that was that terrible shooting of performance? Was that more of an anomaly? Or are, are, are the Sixers going to regret losing a game in which the Hawks shot that poorly but it just felt like the Hawks couldn't capitalize on on open looks um either team really was adept at capitalizing on those opportunities uh it looked like a JV game for for large portions of the night but I think just when when all it came when all is said and done it was just a matter of execution late down the stretch and the Sixers just gave up an opportunity and I mean I would I would call it taking the foot off the gas, but I think some of it is also, hey, listen, sometimes poetry of basketball is that even the most well-run plays don't have the happy ending, so. Kind of scary to think what the score could have been had the Hawks been knocking down some of those open looks. Doc obviously addressed it after the game, but also said that Philly really stopped passing in the second half. They started playing a little bit of hero ball and frankly just got outworked on both sides of the glass there by the Hawks. Is that a fair assessment or was there something different that you saw from where you were watching versus what Doc was seeing on the sidelines? 
I think so. The, the way that I, I phrase it in my write up of the game was that it was a horrible game for Joel, obviously. It was uh, a bad game for Ben Simmons in that he just wasn't like, where was he? Every time, anytime you have to ask that about your all star, it's probably that he didn't have a good game. And then I thought Doc also was just. I had I found myself questioning much of what he did, and I usually don't find myself questioning the coach that much in game because I think there's a bunch of different factors that have a butterfly effect that leads to something else that the coach does. But I thought in this game there there are a lot of decisions where I found myself thinking, well, wait a minute, why why would you do this instead of that? Um, so I thought just all all the way around it was a product of all of that. But having said that, like the Sixers were in a, a prime position to win. They had a lead, a seven point, I think it was a four point lead in the fourth quarter. At one point, they just went away from number one, their hot hand, Tobias Harris, who's been sort of a, a workhorse for them all playoffs thus far. And they just, uh, they, they weren't getting great shots. They were getting a lot of like one, one pass before the shot kind of looks. It was a lot of, it was Embiid settling for threes, which I mean, I'm, I'm okay with him taking a three from time to time. And that's just part of the nature of, of the modern game. And you have to adapt or die at some point uh, to the way the basketball is being played. But when you're that size and you're that dominant in the post and, and within the arc, I don't see a need for an early shot clock three. Um, and I thought, I thought that was the way that he was playing a little bit. I just felt like they weren't really doing a good job of getting to their offense and getting into their bread and butter, which usually when you're the number one seed, you would like to get to your bread and butter offense because that's what's gotten you to the point of being the one seed. So, Yeah, and Rivers also acknowledged, obviously, after the game, he says he's not concerned about Embiid's knee moving forward, but also admitted, yeah, he's obviously not 100%. You can see it out there. He's not as explosive as he was earlier in the season when he was MVP candidate and all that. So from what you've seen so far in the playoffs, though, do you think he's got enough in the tank to continue to get by or is it starting to be time to really be concerned about whether he's going to be able to last even if they get past this round like how many more games and is he doing long-term damage that could ultimately affect his availability next season like is it time to start panicking a little bit here or do you think cooler heads are going to prevail I'm never one to panic because I just think like like one game sample size is is not a good token of, of what's really going on here I think if he comes out next game and he says again, like, I don't have any lift tonight, he has to get medical treatment and he's awful again, then I think you have a very real problem regardless of how the series plays out. But, you know, he could come out today in game five and be completely back to normal. And then in which case, it's not a concern, obviously. I think the issue in here lies, we are not doctors. I'm not a doctor, at least. I, I don't know what a meniscus feels like i don't know what that injury is like whether it's a game by game thing whether it's a once it deteriorates it's a progressively deteriorating thing for when to get it fixed so for all i know and all i can say is we'll, we'll play it we'll play it game by game and we'll just see if it comes if it happens again you have a problem if not then i guess it's okay but my understanding is from someone who is in a family full of medical personnel no injury is alike you know that every 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 body is different. Every injury scenario is different. Every context is different, and that's exactly how it is in this case. From that, you know, from one case to the next. I mean, DeAndre Hunter for the Hawks is missing the rest of the season in the series because of a torn meniscus, very similar to Joel's in, in terminology, but clearly not that similar considering one guy is playing, the other one isn't. Embiid obviously made a trip to the locker room at one point. You already said it off the top was absolutely ice cold in that second half. It even missed a, a really late layup that would have given them the lead again there and potentially sealed the game. But if you're to venture a guess or even just some of the rumors or scuttlebutt kicking around Philadelphia these days, what percent healthy do you think he is? Like, is he 50% of what he was? Is he 90%? Like, how, how much do you think this is really affecting his game right now? What I've heard would suggest that it really isn't that big of a deal. And I don't think they've tried to, like, play it up. I think that they're just kind of like they don't want to lock themselves into like a guarantee of this is this is exactly how it is because then for all anyone knows you know it, it could get progressively worse and then they look bad so there's that I, I don't think you can lock in any sort of answer because I mean we've seen it in the past this season where they've said something like Joel would play in, in a game and then 20 minutes later he's out 
So you can't really go off of that, I feel like. And I think they'd have to, they have to cover themselves and be careful because you want to hedge. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Now, heading into this series, a large portion of Sixers fans were probably dumbstruck at their luck. You know, you've got Brooklyn and Milwaukee who are going to hopefully beat the crap out of each other before one of them advances on. You're against the Hawks who, okay, they got past the Knicks, but really don't have a esteemed playoff history to their name, especially this iteration of the Hawks, at least. Do you think that to a small degree, fans and, and players might have even underestimated this Hawks team and maybe got caught a little bit by surprise at this point in this series? I would say I, I don't think they got surprised. I mean, I, I think this Hawks team is very good. And, yeah. and, I, and I said this from the, from the beginning. I was very sure that this team was going to give the Sixers problems just because they have, they have such immense depth at their wing positions. They're, they're a team that they can go at you from a variety of different angles. They don't have one way of beating you. And in the same sense, like one guy subs out, the next guy comes back in and can do very similar things. They have shot creation all over the place. They have a, a low center of gravity point guard who can create off the dribble, is very elusive, very quick and shifty. And I think those are all things that really can can, can pick the Sixers apart. And so I thought the series would be a problem. I was quite discouraged after game one because of the way they came out flat. I thought they underestimated the Hawks. And then game two, in the first half, I was also disappointed the way they came out. But I thought a better gauge of who they were was uh, game three and the second half of game two. I also think that having covered this team and watching this team so prolifically over the last 10 years of my life, and really this era of Sixers basketball is that game four is also who the Sixers can be at times. So it's kind of like, you never really know what you're going to get. And the reason that they're in this spot is because they've been more consistently on the positive side this year. But I do think that this Hawks team is very good not to be slept upon. They're on the uprise as it is. And if the Sixers aren't careful, they could certainly lose this series still. Yeah. Philadelphia is probably guilty of having a bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, personality you really don't know which team you're gonna get on any given night and like you just said there too it even comes in fits and spurts that can come out kicking the doors off the place there and then just take an entire quarter off and suddenly it's a ball game again like when was the last time you would say that you've seen Philadelphia operating at the peak of their powers and put together a full four quarter game like has it even happened in this playoffs yet or do we need to go back to the regular season like how, how far back do we need to go to see sort of the ceiling for the Sixers team. Oof. <laughs> uh, you're needing to think this long there. Probably bodes poorly for the Sixers as far as when they're firing on all cylinders, right? Well, like, I, I, I would say, like, their best two halves of basketball that perfectly encapsulated their season were really the first quarter of game two and then the second half of game three. So, I mean, the, in terms of in terms of having like your most complete game, you would I would have to go back and look at some. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't. I mean, I, you could probably make the argument it was in the playoffs, like in the first round, um, but it certainly hasn't been this series. If it was this series, then it, they would be up, you know, three games to one, or three, you know, it would have swept already. So, at what point does this get onto the players, and it becomes a fundamental issue of? All right, this core group of you know, Simmons, Embiid, Harris, et cetera, can't seem to put it all together. Need to look at shaking something up, or is it coaching? Is it front office? Is it roster construction? Like, what is it about them that they just seem so incapable of reaching consistency in Philadelphia? I think it's just a matter of number one, like, I, I think their depth from beyond the starting unit is has been very like in flux throughout this whole tenure of Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. This was the best year of depth I think they've had, and they still were not that deep of a team. So, you know, you have the starting unit, which is just sensational. And then the bench is almost like inverted in how poor they are (laughs) compared to the second unit. So even like, even like when this, the first team suggests like, Oh, this is a very consistently great unit. They're brought back down to earth by the by the poor play of the of the second team. And also, I think at times, you know, you have the whole conundrum of Ben Simmons shooting jumpers that 
can plague uh, a unit that he's playing with and can really scar some, you know, leave some scar tissue there. So I do think that the one thing that is kind of hard to judge that on, if you will, is the fact that we saw Brett Brown there for the first three or four years that they were competitive. And then this season's the first season under a new regime and Doc Rivers has instituted a, a, a different culture and, you know, more continuity and the play, and he's really gotten more out of, out of this grouping than, than the previous regime had. But maybe three years from now, if the pieces are all together still, maybe the theme and the trend is that they grew consistently and got better than they did under the previous regime. But right now, I think it's just, it's just a matter of like evaluating some of the same players, but from suit from two separate regimes. And I think that can sort of skew and cloud how things look. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember which account it was there, but someone posted on Twitter you know, scenes of uh, Ben Simmons warming up pregame for game four there. And I think he bricked like seven jumpers in a row. I, I couldn't get to a computer fast enough to place a bet on the Hawks, but you know, shout out to our friends at my bookie. I c- couldn't get to the money line fast enough. Could have made some money there, but I mean, <sighs> Trey Young is obviously doing Trey Young things in this series. You could talk for hours about him, but if we look at anyone not named Trey Young on the Atlanta Hawks roster, like who's one or two players that has really impressed you just with their play through the first four games so far? Bogdan Bogdanovich, I think, has been sensational for the Hawks, and I think it's it's not even that like he's he's shooting the lights out, but it's that he can put the ball on the floor and create off the dribble and like you know, shoot into the lane, curl around and, and then pivot into a tested fall away mid range jumper and knock it in. He's, he's had a lot of uh, killer shots in this series and he's been great. And he's been a really a source of energy for the Hawks. And so I think he's been somebody who's been massive for them. I've just been really impressed just in the first couple of games as well, too, of just how much motion the Hawks are doing on offense at all times. There's almost not a single second, even one of their five players is standing still. And that obviously comes from the coaching philosophy and, can we just take a minute here to, you know, say what an unbelievable job Nate McMillan has done oh, yeah. turning this dumpster fire franchise around from perennial sub 500 team. And you, you look at those first couple of years of Trey in the league, like it was uh, a very, very different Hawks team. He comes in and suddenly they're looking like world beaters. Like is Nate McMillan possibly one of the most underappreciated coaches in the NBA right now? Yes, ab- absolutely. And I think like, like someone said to me, yesterday one of my followers was said like this Hawks team is average at best and I and I had to pause I was like well, wait a minute they're 27 and 11 in the regular season since that Lloyd Pierce got fired Nate McMillan has has done a fantastic job with that group and you know I think part of it like number one is that the numbers would would suggest that a little bit of it was poor luck on Lloyd Pierce's end. Like, like the numbers, the, the Hawks didn't have any kind of seismic shift in their defense. They were mm-hmm. a below average defensive team before and after, but their offense really got better under Nate McMillan. So I think that's certainly part of it. And a lot, and some of it is the ability and sort of the buy-in that they'd gotten off ball from Trey Young um, to not, to not just dominate as a conductor of offense, but also get, a, get his teammates involved and make them more engaged and productive on offense. So I think, he is absolutely a great coach for sure. And I, I would think, and I would hope that they remove the, uh, the, the, the tag of interim from his, his title. To borrow an Isaiah Thomas quote there, back up the Brinks truck for him and just get him locked up long-term because he's done a phenomenal job, especially with that young core too. But if we get back to obviously the man of the hour himself, Trey Young had an unbelievable performance game four. from what you've seen though, like, what is the key to slowing him down? Because kind of like any superstar in the NBA, you're never going to completely negate him and can't just cross your fingers and hope that he has one of those Trey Young nights where he happens to go two for 12 from three points or something like that. So like, yeah. what do the Sixers need to do to slow him down? I've like been very loud and suggestive in the idea that they should be icing Trey Young in the pick and roll just because – like with ice defense, you're angling the ball handler and basically trying to shut off his ability to get back towards the middle of the floor. And you're kind of funneling him towards the sideline and to the rim. So you're kind of taking away his ability to make plays on both sides of the floor by going down the middle. And I think that's where Trey Young can be most dangerous. And so I would definitely put him in a scenario where you're taking away one side of the floor and you're kind of limiting the number of options he has to make plays off of. But also I think they've done a, good, a better job of, of helping off of shooters 
and not being so focused on one side or the other. They've been very even keel and how they've defended. And I think as a result, you've seen the Hawks three point attempts go down a little bit uh, game by game since game one. But, you know, I definitely don't think you can give him any kind of space behind screens and, and allow him to get comfortable. You got to match him with size on, on both sides of the pick. And they've done a, a they've done by and large a, a pretty good part of that, a pretty good job of that. But, you know, last night, the assists, the, his ability to make plays rarer its ugly head. And in game one, he was just doing everything because they had Danny Green on him and, and the Hawks were a better team been better accustomed and better built to, to for the, him to destroy Danny Green than they were in the regular season when Danny Green defended him and did a good job on it. So there's a bunch of different variables there, but I, I, I do think that they have to keep him out of the middle of the floor and limit his ability to see both sides of the court. You know, you, you mentioned at the top of the show there, <laughs> if the uh, Sixers sort of pulse could be summed up in one way it would be that you know walking away from an explosion type thing with or a dog sitting in the room there saying this is fine meanwhile flames are going that up is exactly the, the 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 meme i would have gone with yes yeah and, and if you look at sixers twitter especially after game four don't ever put the sixers sports, oh my god all, all sorts of hot takes and there, there's obviously a reason that th- some of these people are just on the internet firing yeah. away with their thumbs versus being coaches but one sort of little sub conversation that piqued my interest there was there seemed to be some debate going on as far as, again, defending Trey Young. Some people in Sixers land want someone, whether it's, you know, Matisse or whether it's Simmons or someone like that to say, you know, you know what, I got him. Like, I, I want him. I want that challenge. I'm going to be blanketing him in his back pocket all night. Someone step up that way. Others are saying, no, you know, you have to do it by committee. You've got to, like you were saying, throw size at him, either side of the pick and rolls, all that. Like, which side do you sort of see Doc at least implementing? Do you see him giving someone that assignment and, you know, you can't pin money to a Bolton board anymore. That's a quick way to get yourself in hot water. But back in the old days, that's what they would have done, right? They, they would have not gotten a bounty on him, but someone would have stepped up to that challenge. Like, do you see him leaning one way or another? Would say I don't in, in terms of like who guards Trey. I would say, I think Doc has been very prideful of giving different looks to different guys. And he's been very, been very you know, vocal about how you can't let him read the defense any one way too many times or else he bites you. So I think they're going to continue to try different things. But I also think that when it comes down to the nuts and bolts and winning and get, winning a playoff game, it's going to be Ben Simmons or Matisse Thibel. Yeah. And Matisse Thibel, uh, I mean, on one hand, Philadelphia is in kind of a weird position, right? Because defensively, you love to have him out there. He made second team all NBA defense for a reason, right? But on the offensive side of the floor, and it really showed in game four, the Hawks aren't even bothering to put a man on him. They're, they're just daring him to shoot. And unfortunately, he's acquiescing that request and bricking quite a few there. So as this series goes on, obviously, you still have a little bit of leeway where you can still lose one. But once you get to those elimination games, do you see his usage going down at all? If it is in maybe a tighter game just to get some sort of different look on offense and force the Hawks to actually play man to man and not just pack the paint or double someone down low or anything like that. Like, do you see him, his role changing as the series moves on or is doc just going to let him work through this? He's a young guy. He's got to figure it out himself at some point. I would probably say that, well, you can't run the offense through Matisse. You would have to have him at end of year evaluation on your job status. If you ran the offense through Matisse liable, that's how, that's how, lacking he is on the offensive end of the floor. I mean, he's an elite perimeter defender, incredible instincts. That's why he's in the NBA. But in terms of like giving a different look, I mean, I, I, I think a different look might be maybe you go zone for a couple possessions just to catch the Hawks off guard a little bit and make them think a little bit before shooting. But in terms of like the offense, I mean, listen, it's going to run through Ben. It's going to run through Tobias Harris. It's going to run through Joel Embiid. That's the way they're going to get to the, to, to the promised land. So just tell him to go down there, set some screens and <laughs> grab a board for an easy put back. Hope for the best at this point. Basically the, the idea is let him catch the ball in the corner, drive somebody out the baseline and then just go dunk it. And yeah. then if not that, then set your feet and get ready to shoot because that's where the ball is coming to you. So obviously down to a best two out of three at this point here. 
what's one factor that Philadelphia needs to get right ahead of game five and heading into game six and seven, if they want to stand a chance against the Hawks? Like, is, does it hang on just that one, one or two things, or is it just a litany of factors that they need to improve on? Um, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say like stand a chance. Cause I think that they, I would still favor them to win the series. And I think a lot of people would favor, favor them to still win the series. It's still only tied to two. So, I mean, you know, you have two out of three at home still, you, if it has to get to that point, but I think the thing that has plagued them is number one, their sense of urgency. So I think just coming in and being convicted in your belief that this is a must-win game, even if it isn't a must-win game. And that, that stems from the veteran leadership of the, of the players on the floor. Coach can only say so much and do so much. It's on the players to actually come out and play and set the tone themselves that way. But also, I think offensively, it can't be like a game-to-game basis of like, okay, on this episode of the Sixers, is Ben Simmons going to show up or not? It has to be like he has to come in there, and if Embiid is not dominating the game and necessary, and you know, it isn't like a requisite that he gets every touch, Ben Simmons has to show up and, and be a threat and be aggressive as a playmaker, as a pace pusher, as a facilitator and scorer. I always like to get anyone who at least watches the Sixers religiously's opinion on this, because again, people seem to be entrenched squarely in one camp or another. Ben Simmons, like, is he the long-term solution at point guard, or do you see him ultimately shifting positions and, and someone else is going to be pounding the rock up and down the court in the future for the Sixers? I think so much of it is like, the power that hit the clutch agency has mm-hmm. and like they want him to be the second you know the, the, the robin to, to to joel's batman if not the batman of his own team which i mean if he has to be the batman of his own team best of luck to you you're not gonna win many games but i would probably say they're going to roll with him at point guard until someone until they know that like listen we give, we give it a try it's it, we're not good enough and then in that case then i think you're gonna see a scenario where he gets traded to somebody and mm-hmm. Like I think, like I think, like if they if they flame out short of expectations, the rumors will be rampant, and I'm sure Daryl Morey will make a call out to Portland to see what they to see if maybe they're interested in some business. But I would certainly think that for the time being, Ben Simmons is the guy because you've committed a lot of equity to him in terms of contract, and you know Doc is a major, major Ben Simmons supporter, and by all accounts, so. Do you see them riding the ship? Like, is it going to get done in the next two games, or do you see this going the full distance? And we've got a seventh game coming up here for us. Um, I've been conditioned to always assume the worst with the Sixers, <laughs> but I would probably say that I just think that they're too good of a team to let these opportunities slip by. I'm probably, I, I think I'm, I'm still sticking with Sixers and Six. I don't think it's just even the Sixers. I think it's just Philadelphia sports fandom because as an Eagles fan, I always get my heart ripped out every single year by them. And the one year that I kind of wrote them off where it's like, all right, well, Wentz goes down. Like we're not winning the Super Bowl with Foles. Uh, they end up surprising you there. So who knows? Maybe this is their year with Embiid announces that his meniscus is torn before the playoffs and somehow rides them through to the promised land. But I don't think you're alone in uh, Philadelphia sports fandom there in uh, always assuming the worst of your team. Right. Looking ahead for a moment, though, who do you think the Sixers would rather see come out of that Nets Bucks series? Isn't that the question? I think anyone logically would say the Bucks because there's less firepower up front. But I also think like Embiid sees that series and he's like, which one of these guys in Brooklyn is going to stop me? Let's 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 go let's go to work here. So I think in terms of winning a championship, you probably want to see the Bucks, but also the Nets aren't healthy right now. Like we don't know what they are. So I think it's hard to say at the moment, probably right now, assuming, assuming the nets are able to come back and be what we think they can be mm-hmm. probably the bucks. But I also think you can make the case like, Hey, the nets are wounded right now. You can beat them. Go, go, go get that championship. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, would that have been your same answer before the playoffs started and the injury started piling up for Brooklyn? Or would you have had a, a much different opinion of who you would have rather seen in the Eastern Conference Finals? I would probably say before the before I saw the Bucks try to run offense in, in, in these playoffs and look awful doing it. And before the Nets got hurt, I'd say, give me the Bucks all day. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think now... I still might say that just because it's it's a wild card for the Nets, but I think right now like everyone's watching Game Five in that series and they get like, well, what is that going to look like? What is James Harden going to look like? So if you only if you're trotting out Kevin Durant as the only guy who's at 100, percent 
I, I would have to reevaluate my feelings. Yeah, amazing. All right. Well, Austin, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. For those that are listening that want to either connect with you on social media or see any of your articles, like where are the best places for people to find you these days? You can find me on Twitter at NBA Krell, and I am reporting on the Sixers. I am writing on the Sixers. I am talking about the Sixers uh, until my fingers bleed. So yeah. that so you can find me there. You can DM me all of your mean uh, comments and questions and concerns. If you have any inside tips, I also welcome those questions, whatever. I'm always, I'm always yours. Beautiful. All right. Well, best of luck. Hopefully they don't rip your heart out again this year. Maybe this is your year. Best of luck to you. We appreciate you coming on tonight. Thanks, Kyle. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. A huge thank you goes out to Austin for sitting down with us today and talking all things Sixers and Hawks. Be sure to give him a follow on social media if you want to keep up with some of the stuff that he's working on there. While you're at it, give us a follow on social media as well, too. All of our social handles are the same. They're all at Dine Sports, D-Y-N-E-S, sports with an S at the end of it. You can also give some of the other podcasts on the network a follow as well, too. That's Real F-O Podcast on Twitter for the front office podcast or dynasty d-y-n-e-s-t-y league on twitter as well too same thing on instagram you can check those out some of the cool stuff that they've got going on there as well monthly contest going on until june 30th you can get all the details on any of our facebook pages instagram pages twitter or anything like that so go see if you can win yourself a prize Until next time, folks, enjoy the NBA playoffs, enjoy the MLB, enjoy the Stanley Cup playoffs and everything else in between, and we'll see you guys in a bit.